Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an outstanding episode planned for you on leadership. This episode is a topic near and dear to all of us, but in particular to Rachel and myself, as we've been mentored by each of these individuals invited. We have three individuals who are no stranger to being in leadership roles, whether it's in their practice, their division, their department, as a team physician, within a national or international specialist society. First, we have Dr. Brian Cole from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Dr. Cole is the managing partner of Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. She's the associate chair of the Harmonic Surgery at Rush University. He's the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, and he's the immediate past president of ANA. Dr. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, and look forward to hearing what the others have to say as well. Next, we have Dr. Matt Preventure from the Stebbing Clinic in Vail. Dr. Preventure is a professor of surgery and orthopedics at USUHS. He is chairman of the Vail Health IRB. He is the former head team physician of the New England Patriots and former chief of sports medicine at MGH. Dr. Preventure, welcome to the podcast. Rachel, Pete, thanks so much for having me. Look forward to our discussion tonight. Thank you. The last but not least, we have Dr. Buddy Sawa from Tulane University. Dr. Sawa is professor and chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Tulane, the past president of both the ASCS and ANA, and is currently the first vice president of the AOS and will be the 90th AOS president in 2022-2023. Dr. Squaw, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate being here. Look forward to learning from everyone. Well, let's get started right away. Each of you have led in multiple capacities, too many to count, on research teams, with sports teams, your clinical divisions, and your departments, and your practices, and your hospitals, and certainly on the national and international scale with a variety of different responsibilities and societies. Let's start with Dr. Cole. Dr. Cole, what led you to want to take on your current leadership positions, specifically in Chicago, related to being the associate chair of the Department of Orthopedics at Rush University Medical Center, as well as in a differing role, but in the same location, managing partner of your private practice, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush? Um, So, you know, truth be told, none of us have prepared for any of this. So this is going to be, these are going to be cold answers, uh, but that means they're coming from the heart. So it's interesting you say what led me to do it. I would say the first thing is that, you know, all of us, all of us on this podcast episode, you know, have assumed positions of leadership, I think mainly because uh, we're able to accumulate lots of activities and and often deliver, but we also understand what it means to work with others and enable them to be their best as well. And that's not just a political answer. I think that when you're in a group environment, for example, a private practice or private academic practice, it it really requires someone who can kind of strike a balance and and as I say, get the most out of the people around you. Um, I think people are not necessarily born leaders. I wasn't born a leader. I think that it's a situation where you learn over time. You learn the humility of being a leader over time, and I think you learn to sort of read a room. And one of the greatest things I've learned over time, especially through my uh, Anna tenure on the on the board, is how to sort of get the most out of the room and build consensus and allow people to have a voice. Uh, and not at the same time shutting them down. And I think that's really important because there's, there's no one who leads without someone either ahead of them or behind them. It's always a team sport. And um, 
so I would say that it's just an interest in making a difference. Um, and, you know, honestly, having the privilege that someone has the confidence that that I could do it. Uh, but you clearly and I think you'll probably hear this thing tonight. Nobody does it alone. Uh, we all do this with uh, with excellence, with people around us uh, that makes it happen. Now, Dr. Cole, I think Rachel and I both look look upon the leadership roles you've taken with some admiration, knowing the complexity of those roles at Rush. Tell us a little bit about how those two roles under one roof really differ for you. So uh, just to clarify, Pete, so you're saying sort of the managing partner role, right? And then at the same time, Correct. chairman academic role? Exactly. Um, it's, it's an interesting position to be in, and, and I'm sure Buddy will have some similar observations. Um, we, you look at the different constituents in that role, chairman or associate chairman and sort of the academic side of it requires you to sort of harness a, people from various walks. It could be hospital administration, the many layers that the hospital brings to the table, trying to sort of engender the best relationship possible. But at the same time, we have this allegiance to those who are really trying to, to make a difference and who look to us to provide opportunities. And it's one of those things where I always say there's plenty of room at the podium and there's we're in a position that we can often provide opportunities to others. And they look to us to say, look, I would love to have the opportunity to make a difference and to someone hear my voice. So being sensitive and get, as I say, getting the most out of those around you has been something that we've learned over time. I can share with you, you know, in brief, we, we had challenges early on in our research efforts because we were working in silos. And when we transitioned to regular meetings, and you often hear this concept and Matt uses it well, you can't over communicate. Um, you, we, we worked in silos until, and then when we transitioned to these group research meetings where everyone had their voice and was recognized for what they did, it elevated the entire enterprise where our productivity just went through the roof because people felt like they were being valued for their contributions and not taken for granted and, and their, their opinions were being respected. On the group side, it's a whole different thing because you have the economics, the, the outcomes, the excellence you're trying to achieve. Um, that to me, you know, is even my Anna president role last year was one of the greatest challenges I've had. I will tell you that managing uh, a, your own partners and your immediate peers is probably the, the biggest challenge in leadership that I've ever had. And but I've I can tell you I've I don't think I've enjoyed this sort of this this sort of role any more than I ever have uh, when I think about uh, my role as managing partner. It's probably the most fun I've had over the last four years in building consensus and being at the same time, being sensitive to a variety of different opinions, as I'm sure all of you have in your own respective departments. Matt, how about you? How did you come into your leadership roles previously in Boston at a, you know, truly academic medical center and now in Vail at a private practice, but of course, a very academic oriented and minded private practice. You've had a variety of different roles. Um, tell us a little bit about those different roles and how you came to to find yourself in those roles, Rachel? Great question. I, you know, I think when you step back and look at the concept of leadership, that you know, there's so many great definitions. But when you look at the term and the essence, it's really accomplishing, you know, a goal, accomplishing a mission, accomplishing something meaningful and tangible through people and through people is your team. Brian said it perfectly. It's all about your team. It's all about your people and you have to help take care of your team. The second point on that is, you know, you talk about mass general and all these other big leadership roles and, you know, many of the roles that we've had on this phone, but 
you know what, we've, we've had leadership roles and, you know, for anyone listening to this, you have a leadership role as a medical student, as a resident, as uh, <clears throat> a trainee and even college in your programs, you know, coming up, uh, a junior attending in the OR, you are a leader every day for that operating room team, for your clinic staff. And so this is really, you can hone your craft of leadership. And Brian talked about becoming keenly aware of how you are as a leader and the humility with it is, is massive and you can accomplish great things through an, an incredible team, but it starts now. It starts early on, I, I think, to really develop those skills that are self-sacrifice. You would never ask someone to do something that you haven't done yourself or would consider doing yourself. Um, that's just, or know how to do yourself. That's just one of the major principles of leadership and to be able to accomplish that mission at a high level. And whatever that mission is, it could be something super simple every day, a two minute mission, or it could be something very long term. So when you put all that together, Rachel, you then have the opportunity for you know a variety of reasons to come into these other leadership positions and roles, whether it was a mass general or leading the Patriots. And you know, it was a great job, but you know, one that was very challenging on so many levels for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, we have leadership challenges in our, our clinics and our departments and in our lives. And so you're going to be faced with smaller and, and larger ones throughout your whole life. And it's just how you handle that situation. And, and just to summarize it, you know, a term that we use all the time is having the situational awareness as a leader to truly take care of your team because that is very powerful and they're going to take care of you. So when you get in these roles, it's, you can't forget, um, you know, where you come from and how to, how to truly take care of your people. Sounds like a, a common theme we're hearing is how difficult it can be at disparate groups moving in the same direction. Dr. Savoie, I wanted to ask you about this specifically because you're about to come into a role that's famous for that difficulty as president of the AOS. How did you come into this role and how are you preparing for, for that challenge? Well, thanks, Peter. I think the biggest thing is you always have to remember that it's never about you personally, that it's about the greater good um, and that team building and consensus building, as you've heard from Brian and Matt, is extremely important. And if you think that someone else's viewpoint, not necessarily better, but everybody's viewpoint needs to be included. And you have to be a good listener. You have to know what the problems are, what, what everyone is interested in. Brian alluded to silos, Matt alluded to, uh, you know, being in charge and yet bringing disparate viewpoints together. And I don't think in orthopedics has any greater challenge than the academy in doing that because we have so many different factors. But I think if everyone understands that you have their best interests at heart, that they come before you, that the group comes before you, and that we're trying to build a consensus and do what's best for everyone, then you can be a good leader of the very disparate groups as long as they know your heart's in the right place. Let's talk a little bit about balance because I think reality is you guys are some of the most accomplished orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic leaders that our field has ever seen and may ever see. And that's attributable to your skill set and your ability, but also your ability to balance and manage time. And I think a lot of our young listeners probably struggle. I mean, I know I struggle myself with balancing a variety of different responsibilities. And at the level that you guys are able to do this at, it's, it's unbelievable. So I think 
we'd love some tips on how you balance your leadership roles with the other roles that you have to participate in, including, of course, your clinical practices, your research endeavors, your extracurricular activities, and time with your family and friends. Can you give us some strategies for how you manage this, especially during a presidential year or a leadership year or something along those lines? Dr. Cole, let's start with you. Yeah, big, you know, big question. And obviously, all of us could, might have you know big answers. Um, I would maybe ask our, our listeners to uh, turn to um, this month being uh, October's arthroscopy, where I had my uh, presidential address. They, they, pub, they always publish the presidential address. So that's a good free publication, by the way. Um, and, and um, but I, I would ask that just because the focus was, was on balance. And I would, I guess my disclosure is that I can tell you that while I can talk a big game, I think I'm always struggling to to improve it, like like all of us. But there's a sense of awareness that happens as you mature, and you know one of the things I point out is that you know work is is like a ball; it, it kind of bounces back. But so if you drop it, you're, it's going to recover. But family, health, friends, spirit, all those things you drop it, and they can be very very difficult to sort of get back on the wagon again. So just identifying what's more vulnerable and respecting that, I think can go a long way. You know, you often hear that, you know, this concept that no is really a complete sentence. And, and every time you and I say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. And that's led me to this concept of uh, the first one is sort of the kinds of things I like to say yes to and the kinds of things that I feel the need to say no to. And I, one of the, the principles that has been really helpful to me is um, this concept of sort of horizontal versus vertical integration. It's a, it's a business principle, but when you think about companies that do horizontal integration, they, they sort of um, borrow from things that are already happening. Uh, and you can use your current platform to do something else that's incremental. But when you do something sort of vertically that, that may not balance skills or tasks that you're currently doing, it can be particularly difficult and you're, you, you're not as proficient at it. None of us want to agree to do something and not deliver. That's sort of the original sin, agreeing to something and then not delivering is really hard to get out from under. Um, and, and I think it's one of those things that over time, you know, it depends on where one is in their career when they feel that they can actually say no uh, versus, you know, and, and understand that the ramifications may not be as severe as they once anticipated. So I think that's part of it. It's I, I don't expect young people often who haven't had you know, endless opportunities who are really, those who are really looking for new leadership roles to, you know, impact their peers and, and students and so forth to feel comfortable saying no, it's really tough. Um, but what you learn, and if I had to give any advice is that if you have a good reason and you express the reason why you're saying no, those who are asking, who are mature enough to understand that and recognize that it's not something they can, they need to take personally, will actually have a lot more respect and understanding for you than you might ever imagine. And if you if you do it that way, you'll be very surprised that those opportunities will will circle back. So, you know, the worst thing that I think we can do is say yes to something and then not deliver because when that happens, that becomes that 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 spreads like wildfire and 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 then nobody is going to want to to sort of rely upon you to deliver. So, I think being realistic in terms of your time commitments, keeping appropriate balance to the things that really do matter in the end, such as you know family, your health, friends, and spirit, and so forth, and and understanding the the the, the, the you know the buckets that you occupy throughout the course of your 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 year, if you will, when you start to get out of balance, almost by taking inventory. And I think just one final comment: I, what happens when people are younger, 
you know, depending on the demographic that listens to this podcast episode, when they're, when they're younger, um, there's this belief that, well, I'm just going to work really hard right now. And I'm not going to really worry about this being out of balance and, you know, accumulate my you know, wealth and, and save and, and, and really uh, try to get the massive number of publications if that's your interest and so forth. And I'll worry about sort of reconciling it at the end. And I will tell you that I learned along the way that if you sort of think about this reconciliation in shorter bites, like days, weeks, and months, take the time to do the things you love, whether it's work out, ski, do something with your children, whatever it is, rather than putting it off until you think you're going to have more time, you probably will feel far more satisfied with your day-to-day activities and day-to-day life instead of just sort of pushing it to the end. Because, you know, we all know, we often say, you know, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think it makes the things we do today far more gratifying when you balance it with things that you really, really enjoy today rather than waiting until you might have time later on. Brian, if I may, you, you know, this is, <laughs> your, your answer is beautiful. You, you know, your Anna presidential talk was you know fantastic as well. We, we all learned from it. You know, when I look in retrospect and on, you know, I think probably what all of us have done on this call is, you know, we've worked hard, you know, we, and the, the leadership can be a challenge. It's, it's hard to do well. Why is it hard to do well? Well, in our world, it's tough because you you have to be available. You have to be around. You have to answer the text. You have to pick up the phone. You have to meet with people face to face. We've gotten away from that in COVID and that special bond that happens when you really develop that innate trust and the integrity bond that you have with your team. They're going to take a thousand times better care of you if you spend the time and develop them as a leader. And are there for them, you know, and, and just a few small things that, you know, that I've learned along the way. And you know, like Brian, I probably have not always been the best of it, but I've always tried to do this. And even though leadership is hard, why is it hard? Because it takes time. Yeah. I leave my door open unless I'm in a very sensitive private meeting doors open 24 seven in my office and people are welcome. They come in and the reality is like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. I got 10 things to do. I got this to do. I got that you know what, they only want two, three, four, five minutes of your time, but you've got to make it meaningful. Close the computer, close the laptop, put the phone down, don't take the calls and listen to them and they will do anything for you. And it could be anyone that comes into your office. And so that for me is huge. That two to five minutes is worth five emails, (laughs) 30 extra minutes, an hour. So helping set this up and the way you behave with your team, with your people and you know, everyone, whether it's fellows, I help, I run the fellowship and like, listen, I got fellows in my office, like probably all of us do, are residents and medical students and all kinds of things, but you have to uh, balance that time. One thing I've done really from the beginning and gotten even better at this, and I, I wish I was even better at this in the beginning, listen, I wasn't always the best at this, probably like some of us on this call, is having it in my calendar. Do not book here. They know this is my workout time, my morning time, my workout time. Do not book stuff in here. Do not encroach. We've gotten away. It's gotten harder with COVID, with all these Zoom and everything else, but you've got to book that into your schedule. My entire kid's soccer schedule is in there. Entire lacrosse schedule is in there as far as I know. And they know not to book conflicting stuff in there. And that is absolutely critical. It's calendar management and you can do it, but you got to be proactive about it. I wanted to follow up on this real briefly. Now, Dr. Cole, when I was a resident, you gave a talk about this topic, and it was 
was a really affecting talk. One of the things you presented, which I thought was interesting, is exactly that. You presented your weekly calendar, which was it was amazing, and there were so many things on that calendar. Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of it, of like the aggressive management of your time kind of perspectively. Has that has that played a role for you or have you gotten more flexible with that with time? How, how does that fit into this equation? Um, one of the things that I tried to do is eliminate, well, it was tough over the last year because of the Zoom meetings and so forth. And all of us, it was interesting, you know, we weren't traveling, but you talk to any of us, it was it was pretty nuts because we were trying to protect our day job, which was taken away from us. So working, we basically all worked two jobs. What we used to do is travel. So you didn't have your day job when you traveled and we would do all these things. So what really happened last year is our calendars got completely nuts because it was everything. It was basically 24 seven. So one of the things that I think this year taught me was that I think there's some advantages from a time management point of view that we learned from COVID, quite frankly. Um, and I think that one of the things that I've learned is to get rid of unnecessary travel uh, the, because it just, you don't realize how much time you really waste doing that. Um, I have a one full for me anyway, I have one full-time assistant who manages, manages my calendar. And the one thing I take advantage of, I am always on the phone in the car. The minute I get, she knows that when my day will start, the minute I get in the car, I start calls so that when I get to my destination, I'm freed up. When I'm, when I'm in surgery in between cases, I'm pretty much, I don't, I'm not the most social person during the day because I'm trying to A, dictate cases, B, see patients, be pre and post-operatively talk to families, and D, always make every minute is either on, on the phone, doing email, whatever it is, because that's my time to work so that when I come home, I'm not just glued to my computer sitting on my lap um, and, or I still have a kid at home, one child at home. So at least I can have some time with her, even though she's 16 and doesn't, and, she, and she's a girl. So maybe wants a little less time to me to do with me than I really <laughs> want at this point. But if you have young children, it's really important to sort of free up that nighttime because you have the day to get all that stuff done. So my assistant, Samantha has been with me 10 years and she spends most of the time managing my calendar and every calendar invite has a cell phone number of the person I'm going to meet with, uh, has the reason for the meeting. If I'm running late, which does happen. I can email while I'm on one call versus another and say, look, or text, I'm running late. It's just about maximizing the efficiency while you're going to be working so that you you can feel comfortable turning it off when you need to, because all of us can really work 24 seven. Um, but I just, the main lesson I could say is that I've learned is to fill every minute that could otherwise be wasted that I would not feel like I need to, I'm not necessarily wanting to listen to a podcast at 7am and otherwise. And frankly, even now at what I, I, I'm actually finding myself having more time to read at night, which I, I didn't used to read novels and things like that. Maybe I have one or two books a year, but I've gotten so effective at this, at just cleaning things up during the day, maximizing every minute. Um, uh, to the point now where I actually have some free time at night. I think that was the problem I had early on. It was just bleeding over into every single evening. And I've gotten a lot better at, at managing that. And then the other thing is, you know, the bar has gotten pretty low for people to meet with us to take our time. So it, it, we, you still have to be mindful of, you know, you, you can't say yes to every single meeting just because it's a Zoom call. At some point, you just get inundated and you have to still be willing to say no to those things too. Pete, I think I remember that lecture that Dr. Cole gave, and I, I believe, if I remember correctly, there were 28 hours in his daily day <laughs> as opposed to 24. Dr. Cole, do you remember that? <laughs> it didn't I'm really happen. Well, it's a funny thing. Whenever you're in a deposition and like the attorney says, well, how do you 
how much time do you spend on what percentage of your time? Like, how do you even define the percentage? And my time or your, our time allotment is a lot different than any other human being's time allotment. It's a pretty fluid thing. And it's a much bigger denominator than most other people have. Yes, there were definitely more, uh, more percentage points than 100 there. But it was a great lecture nonetheless. I wanted to um, move on to one thing that I think can become challenging as you work in a hospital system, as you work as part of a larger organization. Dr. Savoy, you've, you've been chairman at Tulane for some time now, and I'm sure have had to work to develop a relationship with your system, with the administrators within the system, with the dean, with the business leaders. As you've, as you've grown in that role, tell us how you approach that and how you advise young faculty as they approach kind of those difficult situations, especially when there's conflicts of interest about who wants OR time or who wants resources. Well, it's always difficult to uh, assign OR time. Basically, you know, if you have the cases and you have the volume, then you should get the time. And I go to bed for my guys and girls to make sure they have that time um, as long as they can fill it. But I have a great relationship with my dean. I was very lucky. Uh, one of the things when he offered the job, I just said, I don't want to have nonsensical meetings during the day. And I, I'd rather work. Um, and that's my patient time. And Brian was sort of alluding to that earlier. Um, and, and so and as an aside, Rachel, that extra four hours that's on Brian's calendar, that's the optional sleep time. Because the other 24 hours are useful for working. So that's why you get 28 hours. So with mine, I, the dean was very gracious and said, we want, I, want, I want two hours on Tuesday morning because that's when we have our meetings from 7 to 9. Other than that, when do you want to meet? And I said, anytime before 6 a.m. and after 6 p.m. for the most part works for me. And so I don't have to meet with anybody during the day. Um, and if they ask me, I have the backing of my dean to say, no, you can. I'm not doing an 11 o'clock meeting. Uh, I am seeing patients, I'm working, or I'm talking to my folks. And then we move, we, our grand rounds is on Tuesday nights from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And so all of my faculty, all of my residents, even my med students know that they can come talk to me afterwards. And I'll just say, Matt alluded to your doors open. And then when you deal with administrators, you just have to know what they're in, um, what are they hoping to gain? And you have to be able to speak their language. And so for them, it's EBITDA, it's dollars and cents, it's contribution margin. Um, so what happens for the most part with administrators is doctors go to them and say, I want two ORs all day. And they're like, well, what are you going to, I mean, can you feel that? And the doctor always says yes, and then ends up doing three cases in two rooms for the day, and they have dead time. So that doesn't work. So you have to roll it back, be able to back up. And so we've always, with administrators, tried to show what we have already and how it's bigger than what our space is allowed. So if we wanna run our clinic later, we, we push the boundaries and you end up working a little bit of overtime for your nurses. And then you say, you know, if you put a second shift in, we'd be okay. So I think you have to put on different hats as you talk to different people. So you're gonna to speak to your dean differently than you speak to the president of the university. You're gonna to speak to the chief of the hospital differently than you speak to your clinic administrator. But everyone, if you can get them all rowing in the same direction, then it doesn't matter what system you're in, you have to show your value, the value of your, your folks, and then you can advocate for them in such a way that you can win the battle, so to speak. Anyway, that, that works for me. About... Okay, Sorry. okay. Dr. Frencher, tell us a little bit about this in your system. I know you're in a, in a different system that operates differently, but I'm sure have some of the same challenges. How have you managed this 
with your group and with your system? Yeah, Peter, it, it, it's a good question. I mean, the, the reality is systems you may have different flavors, some different cultures, different ways ways of doing business. But but at the end of the day, when you're really looking at the crux of leadership, it, it, it's just like Buddy said, it, it's getting people on, on the bus to accomplish our, our main mission. And, you know, our main mission is providing, I think for all of us out there is exceptional care to patients and, and seeing them do well. And so at the end of the day, as long as you're going back to your mission statement, your vision statement of who you are and what you are, and and look, we've all got vision statements and mission statements for what we should be doing. And if you don't, it should be defined in your group. It should be defined in your university or whatever whatever you're looking at. It, Google's got it. Apple's got it. You know, your their mission statement, their vision statement, and everything from a leadership decision-making, a financial decision-making standpoint revolves around that. And it's no different where we are at, at Stedman. You know, what can we do to deliver that superior uh, patient care experience and help them get back to their goals and desires? And so you keep that in mind all the time. I know it's a little cliche, but you really, you really have to distill it down. And then then the meetings, you know, as Buddy pointed out, they just become easier and you get people on the bus much easier and you get you, the alignment is, is really key. You know, the problems in some of the systems is you don't always have, and we don't, we don't have it here. You don't always have the financial alignment at the end of the day and, or alignment in, in some of the goals or the mission. But I, all of us are sort of in healthcare for the same reason. We can sort of agree on some level of that mission, but not, we're not always financially aligned. Administrators are different from other groups and maybe different from us. And so that that's the challenge is, is finding the underlying gaps, seeing how you can close those gaps and making it better, better for the patient. And the reality is, guess what? You make it better for the patient. A lot of times you make it better for Buddy with just mentioned in the second room where you do really nice staggered rooms and you do that very well. Well, it's better for the patient. They don't have to wait around all day in, in PO status or something. You know, there's a lot of ways to, to do that. And a lot of times that mission carries over directly to you know, our, our job satisfaction, as well as uh, making you a better leader. Let's talk a little bit about team physician leadership roles. And each of you have had incredible opportunities to work with the highest level athletes. And you've been able to do that because of your skill set and your recognition as a leader of these athletes and of your medical team. Can you tell us a little bit about how being the team physician and the head team physician is different from your other leadership roles, particularly at the professional and Olympic levels? And Matt, let's start with you on this. Tell us, you know, what is different about being a team back, say, for an Olympic skier or for the New England Patriots versus the high school sports that we all take care of? How, how from a leadership perspective, is this different for you? And what would you advise our listeners? Rachel, that's a great question. And look, there's plenty of, you know, with Brian and Buddy's experience on here. Also, I, I definitely don't want to talk out of turn on, on this topic. And there's so many great team physicians that I've learned from and helped develop this entire concept. And whether it's Bergfeld and all his ASES presence, but guess what? He's an incredible team physician to help to find Jimmy Andrews, uh, Curlin and Job. And then you got to look back at, at John Fagan and, and just so many others have done such a great job at help defining what it is to be truly a team physician. But guess what? The What is the mission of a team physician? To take care of your athletes at the highest level, to allow them to perform at the highest level, and to let the athletes accomplish their goals. It's no different than patient care. And so you, that's your mission. That's your vision. 
how do you carry that out as the medical director or the head team position or whatever the title may be? You know, that's just a title. And you have to understand that this is a part-time job for many of us. And there are a lot of full-time people, whether it's even at the, the head athletic trainer in a high school system or the head athletic trainer in a professional NBA, NFL, NHL type of system, you, you name it, it, it's it's all the same. It's, it just becomes more complex as the number of uh, faces increase, as the number of voices increase, as the number of uh, competing you know, interests sort of increase. But it, at the crux of the day, it, it's all about the athlete. And that, that's, I think, what you have to remember. Dr. Cole, what about you and your experience with the Bulls and with the other teams that you take care of, as well as the athletes that come in from other teams to see you? How do you feel like your leadership skills help you in this? And what would you advise our listeners on that? I think there's a principle that you can generalize from taking care of athletes because the opinions of others are very visible. And you can read between the lines when you meet athletes because there's a lot of players and there's a lot of whispers. So one thing that I've learned, and I think this, you know, Jimmy Andrews always says this when he has the opportunity to speak in this fashion about there's never anything to be gained by disparaging your colleagues and um, patients actually can read right through it. And it's fascinating to hear what goes on around the country. And um, I would just say that the thing that it can be a challenging situation when you have a difference of opinion. The first thing is our athletes should all, in my opinion, should always be encouraged to seek a second opinion if they feel they need to do so. And, um, so, and, and never be afraid to ask for help. And all, many of us, all of us on this call, uh, are often in positions where our athletes will travel or they will travel to us having had other opinions. And it's our, it, it's sort of a look in the mirror in terms of how we use our words, uh, properly. Maybe when we don't agree with, how things have been managed or how they could be managed moving forward. And it's really important for our patients. And I, and I say our patients, because it's not about professional athletes understand that there's more than one way to get something right. And, and the, the biggest thing I see happen in the world is where someone is told that if they don't do this, this will happen. And, 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 and that becomes sort of a, a very unsettling um, situation for a patient because they, they get very anxious about timing and and what the meaning of these findings are and so forth. And, and I think the take home in general, backing off from that observation is that all of us need to understand that this, this, this healthcare is a very, is very actually local, despite the fact that it's delivered regionally and nationally and that patients can see directly through that. And, and nobody ever looks better with, disparaging remarks or other and trying to be as fair as possible to and, and, and being an educator for our athletes is really important. Um, the other thing that I've sort of learned along the way is that they really need someone, they need something to trust. And when I, when I first started, uh, you know, 18 years ago with Bulls and limited role with the White Sox, you, you, we were much closer in age to a lot of the veteran athletes. And um, and I and and one has to be very careful to avoid blurring the distinction between sort of being friends and sort of you know a desire to really connect, which we all have, even with our own patients, versus maintaining enough of a boundary so that when they really need us, that there is no confusion 
it's almost like being a parent where you you sort of have to be that you know that walk that line of being their friend versus their parent it's it's i think it's somewhat similar when you're managing athletes because there's a system they live in where ultimately they have to have you know considerable trust know that you have their best interests despite having an organization behind them because sometimes they don't know who you work for and um it's important that they really understand that you are their advocate you're not pressing them to get back quicker than they otherwise feel. They have a voice with consensual decision-making. They understand that they can get a second opinion, that there's more than one way to get this right, that they have to balance their you know, early income potential with their potential late income potential, length of contract. There's so many sort of independent variables that operate. And all of a sudden, the meniscal tear is not just a meniscal tear or a, a label tear is not just a label tear. It's something that it is embodied or embroiled in, in a total system. So I think there's a sensitivity you learn over time with those kinds of things in managing athletes. And, and again, like anything else in, in our world, you learn it over time. None of us want to learn it the hard way. You sort of want to, I think, turn to our mentors. And I've, there's so many great examples of people who are, you know, and Matt mentioned Burfeld and, and others that are, that are that just were tr- so good at doing it. Uh, but they didn't start out great. They, they learned to be great over time. And I think the younger people who are interested in managing high schools and, and colleges and so forth, not only should you surround yourself by others who can help you do it because you're not going to be an expert in everything, um, but also, you know, I, there, this expression of, you know, never, uh, never, never let your ego get so close to it that, that it defines you because there often isn't a lot of loyalty in that business either. So you have to sort of be able to separate yourself and, and, and to, to, to optimally function in, in what's otherwise a pretty complicated situation. Dr. Sauber, I wanted to ask you at the collegiate level, when you are a senior surgeon like yourself and you hire younger partners to help take care of some of the teams with you, how do you manage their roles in taking care of those teams? Do you play a role in helping with surgeries, helping with surgical decision-making, talking to the trainers, as obviously you're the guy who's been there a long time and, and you've instilled a lot of trust or is this something when a new team doc for a specific sport, say soccer, basketball, or football, or whatnot comes along, and you've turned over the reins to that new faculty member, uh, is that team that doc's responsibility? How do you work that as um, as the chair of your department, but also as, as the head of sports medicine? That's a great question. I think you have to groom people into learning how to take care of teams. And it's different when you hire somebody fresh out of fellowship as opposed to someone that's been doing it for a while. Um, so theoretically, if someone comes in and has been in practice for a while and has been a sports physician, you sort of think they know how to manage a team. But nonetheless, in a university setting, you have to gain the trust of the entire staff, from the athletic director to the coaches to the trainers. And so what we've done always when we bring in younger folks, uh, even though they're great surgeons, um, we'll bring them in, we'll introduce them, they'll come to the games, hopefully, um, and they'll sit with us or stand with us and we go to the games. and then. You sort of get them to sort to help with the surgery, um, not necessarily do the entire thing, but or and then you'll talk to the players, and then maybe the next one they do the whole surgery from start to finish, but I'm still there, and so that as long as the player's doing well, they can say, well, you can see a Dr. Michael Bryan clearly doesn't need my help, but when he started, that's what we did, and so well, why don't you see Dr. O'Brien for this one? I mean, he helped with the surgery and he can manage you post ops, and then they see him in the training room, they get that trust built up. And so then by next year, he's doing the cases and they'll say, oh, it's a shoulder injury. And I'll say, well, you know, Mike's available. I'm kind of tied up. Why don't you see him? And if there's a problem, let me know. 
Worst thing in the world you can do as a young doctor is overreach, get something, and unfortunately get a less than successful result because then the trainers, the staff, the coaches are not going to want you to see that their players anymore. And so we groom it a little bit at a time and then let it happen that way. And that way, if anything goes wrong, not that, that things usually go wrong, but if they don't do as well, they'd be like, well, they saw Dr. Sabah, he's the old guy. Um, and, uh, and that's just to be accepted. It is not anybody's really fault. We have to just work through the problem as opposed to a young surgeon when they're getting started and they go out and something doesn't go right, the player doesn't make it back to the same level, it's the surgeon's fault and we don't want that. We want to groom them into how to do it. How do you talk to the coach? How do you talk to the trainer? If you happen to visit with the athletic director, what you can and can't say and make sure that they sort of adhere to how to take care of the team. And, you know, you learn that from other people. I mean, Matt alluded to it earlier. You learn that from a Jimmy Andrews or a John Bergfeld or a Mike Brunet, who's the team doc at Tulane before me. Um, Greg Stewart is one of our doctors. People like that can really teach you how to talk to all the different elements. And then for our kids, it's always, if they're hurt, I always call the parents. And I just say, can, can you know, do you need me to talk to your mom or your dad? Do you want me to call them? Do you want them to call me? Here's my cell phone. I know they're going to be worried. And then hopefully you talk to them that night. Um, sometimes the athlete may forget to call their parents, and that makes it a little bit tougher. But, uh, but in general, um, that's how we handle it here. I just groom my surgeons and bring them along and kind of help and help and help. And then all of a sudden, they're on their own, and everybody appreciates them being there. Oh, and a special thank you. I don't First mean to keep interrupting. Wendell Hurd is now our main team doctor at Tulane, and you guys trained him great at Rush, and he does a fantastic job. But we did the same thing with him for a couple of years, and now he takes care of everything. He's awesome. I remember when Wendell was a fellow. He was a great fellow. You talked a little bit about kind of your process for teaching at the team position level. One of the things that I think is challenging about leadership is where do you gain the skills? It's a particular skill set to be a great leader. Dr. Savoy, tell us, how have you learned about this over time? What resources have been helpful to you? Do you have a recommended course or book, or how have you learned how to do this? I think, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I think Matt may be better. Um, I wouldn't, uh, I certainly would never classify myself as a great leader. I just try really hard uh, to do a good job for things. Um, uh, I think that you have to do what's best. I mean, there's a Fagan Leadership Conference at Duke. There's, you know, military leaders uh, from back even in World War II. And I'm a history buff, so I like to read and look at these things and and uh, um, and see how things that went good or bad for great leaders over time. And then, you know, every few years you can take a leadership class and talk about how to talk to different levels of folks and things that I, I, I may not think about at all that, you know, younger folks think a certain way than, you know, people in their 50s think one way and their 40s think another and their 30s another and 20s. And, you know, it's such a blessing to take care of <clears throat> high schools, college, med school, residents, fellows, professional athletes, college athletes, high school athletes, middle school athletes and their parents and grandparents. And you sort of look at all of it and, and realize that <clears throat> everybody has a different take and a different need. And yet it's very similar. And the hardest part, I think, is to figure out what someone needs and meet that need. And it's no different with our patients. All of us, you know, you may see a, a patient that's a baseball player or somebody that's playing a 70-year-old that's playing pickleball. They want to get back to pickleball. So with, with your 
with everybody trying to gain leadership trust, you really need to know what's their issue and how do you help them through their issues. They're, maybe they're having trouble at home and you talk how to balance your home life. Maybe they're just having trouble relating to nurses in the OR. You say, look, I know you're under stress, but this is how you need to handle it. Take your OR team to lunch, you know, do that. And so I think from top to bottom, it's all about trying to listen and figure out what's important to them. And I think if you can figure out what's important to someone at their specific environment, at their specific phase of life or era, <clears throat> everything's about phases, and the phase they're in is important to them. Maybe they can't see outside that phase to see where the other things are. But if you can meet them at their phase and then help them through or how to handle that phase better, that's how you that's how you become a leader and build things that that last. What about you, Brian? I mean, you've mentioned that you've been reading more recently. I know you got an MBA earlier in your career. What are the, which of those things taught you the most or helped you to prepare for the roles you're in currently? Um, well, the first is experience, and then and and then failing, <laughs> and then being reminded of your failures and accepting criticism. You know, it's we all know that if you're in a position of leadership, you're going to be criticized and handling that criticism is actually one of the, I think, the biggest challenges. But I, I, I can tell you that I've probably grown most from that because when we are criticized, there's often a significant grain of truth. Doesn't mean it's full truth, but there's a grain of truth to what others might be saying. And even if you don't believe it's the truth. Others have that perception, so you have to work together to sort of build consensus. So the one, a couple of things that have really helped me a lot, and and um, you know, when I'm dealing with a very important decision, we, you know, we've had, uh, for example, uh, whenever you're dealing in a practice and you're talking about money, that's the time when everybody shows up for the meeting. When you're talking about compensation, for example, and we went through some significant uh, compensation changes, but. We, it was embedded in, you know, 30 years of sort of a, a, a socialist socialistic model that was not working the same way, uh, given the changes over time. But before when I so that when I took over the group, one of the first things we did is I said, what do you all we sat in a room and said, what does everyone value and what do you generally think is fair and based on principle? And obviously, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. But. Everyone, I, I sort of took the opportunity to give everyone a voice and say, what do you think is the, you know, what is right? What is the right way to manage this? And we agreed on principles. And then we engineered a compensation formula based on principles. And what was fascinating is that we had about seven out of 30 people who would have a, essentially a, a decrease in their compensation based upon a new formula, but they all voted in favor. Of it. In fact, it was unanimous except for one. And and to me, it helped me understand that when you're trying to build consensus, taking the time to have one-on-one -on -one conversations for really difficult uh, 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 topics proved to be particularly beneficial. Um, there, the other thing I've learned is actually reading what others say. There's some there's some awesome uh, quotes that you know all of us like to share, and like Abraham Lincoln is full of them. You know, and you often you hear this one you hear a lot, and you know, so nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Now, obviously we would change the word man today, but this is Abraham Lincoln's time. But, but the point is put a position in a, put a man in a, or a person in a position of authority and see how he performs. And that's a real assessment of his character. And, and another one who's, who has 
who I've often, you know, it's amazing. You don't associate them with these things, but Mark Twain says, you know, really great people can make you feel that you too could become great. That's another one because it speaks to the fact that if you can make others feel that they can become great, it's in my mind, it's all about getting the most out of people in the room. And, and, and some of the, the best things that I've ever read have been from the, the Colin Powell who recently passed. And it was you know, very sad because, you know, he, he was an amazing leader and insanely thoughtful. And we've learned a ton from the military. And I know Matt probably can rattle these things off what you learn from the military, but there's so many great things that we have learned from how, because leadership really, when you think about it, the military is probably the best microscopic example of where you have to lead. I mean, you're leading people on the battle. I mean, you're leading people to risk their lives and put their egos aside and, and, and put themselves at incredible risk to, to, for, you know, for, for death to, the, to their families and so forth. So how do you, if you can lead in that environment, you can lead in any environment. And, you know, I would just finish by saying that um, what I, some things that I put in my presidential address were that, you know, if you're in a position of leadership, you're going to piss some people off. And, and that's when criticism comes and learning how to manage that criticism is really important and learning from it and growing from it is really important. And, and if you're in a situation of leadership where people stop bringing you their problems, um, that's a problem. That means that you're ignored and you're no longer leading. And the details always matter. And I always say, don't be afraid to look under the hood because sometimes you find things that you don't want to see. But if you address that early with full transparency, you can make incredible strides, especially when you have a group of people that really depend upon you. And the, I'd say the one thing, especially in a situation, we deal with some very complicated um, business principles and relationships, contractual relationships and so forth, that many of my partners, for example, don't really need to bother themselves with the details, but they certainly want to understand it. And I think uh, one of the greatest principles that I've learned and that people really learn to appreciate it because of limited time is that great leaders are great simplifiers. So taking the time to actually sort of simplify a very complicated concept and present it uh, from the top down has made a huge difference in terms of ultimately building consensus when I've had really complicated things to manage. As we start to close the podcast, we have a couple of final questions for you guys. And I think one that is timely, and this might seem like a big pivot from what we've been talking about, but important from a leadership perspective is how we address problematic surgeons. And as leaders, you'll often be in the, the area where you have to be the one to make some decisions. So one of the most popular podcasts out right now is Dr. Death. And assuming everyone listening and everyone on the line is familiar, but those who are not, this is a podcast and now TV series that highlights the journey of a real life neurosurgeon with repeatedly terrible outcomes, essentially unimaginable outcomes, but showcases how a surgeon like that passed through the eyes of all, seemingly all authorities through medical school, residency, fellowship, and early into his career and became a full-on practicing neurosurgeon. Do you guys think that this is possible in a field like orthopedics, which is not so different from neurosurgery, particularly with spine surgery, but just in general as a surgical subspecialty? And what, from a leadership perspective, can and should be done to prevent something like that from happening? Mm -hmm. Dr. Cole, let's, let's start mm -hmm. back with you on this one. I mean, I was just happy to hear that Curb Your Enthusiasm had a new episode out last night. <laughs> um, um, I guess I think you're alluding to how we police ourselves. Is that? Yeah, I think that's a fair yeah. way of describing it. And certainly, you know, we have board certification, et cetera. But, yeah. but, we, yeah. but what, what's the reality here? Yeah, it is a tough one, Rachel. I think that's a, it's a really great question. Um, and, you know, I probably similar levels of responsibility uh, as we train residents and fellows. 
um, it can be a real challenge because, and even our own colleagues, quite frankly, um, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to police ourselves because others are often too threatened to do so. But it's much easier said than done. Um, I would argue that um, anonymity, anon anonymous, being an, remaining anonymous, uh, is an option if you have a very significant situation that you feel profoundly uncomfortable in managing. Um, we have dealt with this in the areas of discrimination and uh, in 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 our in our field, it's been um, tremendous. And now that there's a place to have a voice. Uh, it has had a huge impact because it's often a lack of awareness. And now that we have this level of awareness, I think that we're on the precipice of creating a, a much more equitable environment, largely out of ignorance, I think, or at least in part out of ignorance and the inability to feel comfortable managing it in the roles that we have. So that has helped, creating awareness has helped a lot. Um, I think that some of our Biggest challenges are when we have very serious situations. It could be substance abuse. It could be poor decision-making and so forth. How we in a position of leadership actually manage that and, and, as you say, police ourselves. And I would argue that as difficult as it is, because you know that it could uh, derail uh, someone's career, uh, there the we, we have a ethical, uh, moral responsibility to do our best to be fair in our judgments um, and to understand that there's a lot of ways to get it right, a lot of ways to get it wrong, and to help potentially rehabilitate someone wherever possible. But it's not going to happen unless we address the tough issues. So this concept of a 360-degree reevaluation and even evaluating ourselves in a, in a setting where you actually observe cases and decision-making, perhaps turning that to people who are less, who are, who are, uh, um, less partial, if you will, might be a, a better situation in terms of how we do this. And then finally, there's the peer review process, which is really incredibly important. Um, so it is a really tough question. It's one you could probably do an entire podcast on. Um, and I, I appreciate the question because I haven't, we have these situations all the time, quite frankly. And at Rush, we have taken um, upon ourselves a program that I believe it was developed at Vanderbilt that uh, does just this. And it's a peer review process because there's an excellent body of evidence that suggests that um, how you relate to your patients, for example, and behavior issues also directly correlates with your malpractice risk. Even if it's not legitimate malpractice, the number of cases and complaints are directly related to your uh, interactions with patients and acceptance and how you manage complications and so forth. Uh, so we've been involved with a, a program that has been very, very effective in modifying behavior. Confidentiality is probably the key to doing any of this and helping people understand that this process can remain confidential, yet people can be properly rehabilitated is, I think, been paramount to our success in these programs. Certainly a difficult topic. Dr. Savoy, what do you think, and especially with your um, role in the academy and your incoming role as president, has there been any increased attention to uh, policing ourselves or to the board certification and recertification process and what, from your expect your perspective, can we do to to ensure that we are safe and that we are, uh, you know, making sure that we're safe for our peers and safe for our patients? Well, I think you're talking about two different things, and I think we can certainly do a much better job policing. If you're talking about someone that flat out doesn't have the skill set to be an orthopedic surgeon, which is the podcast you alluded to, the doctor death, the guy was a really bad surgeon. 
and got bumped along because he wrote a couple of papers and he did a lot of research and they didn't really pay attention to his surgical skills. So part one is if you have someone <clears throat> that doesn't have the surgical skill ability, you have to intervene early in training and see if they're teachable and if they can be taught how to do things uh, safely and maybe they have a, a limited area, then you're better off intervening them and maybe they need a different field. The second one is the practicing orthopedic surgeon that doesn't have the skill set and is doing things that he or she should not be doing, or maybe they want to do it, but they're just not very good at it. And then you have two options, you know, for us at Tulane and in the New Orleans area, we just invite people to come visit. Um, if they have privileges, we'll get them to scrub in. If it's one of my folks, then I will scrub in with them and and do cases with them. I'll take time out of my schedule and cancel half a day and I'll work with them and try to teach them ways to do it better. So if there's a problem, then it needs to be addressed that way. The second thing that Brian was talking about is professionalism and that really did stem from Vanderbilt. We do that at Tulane and that covers everything from top to bottom. It is how you treat other people with respect and that has to happen. And the Vanderbilt program has a lot of different levels of it and starts with a cup of coffee and other intervention, <clears throat> but you need to be aware of, of, of your effect on other folks. And sometimes, and for most of us, it's just you're not aware. You, you, you're not being a good person or you're not being respectful and it doesn't seem like it to you. And then that's where that professionalism initiative comes in because you can set some examples in a non-threatening environment and 90% of people are going to improve. They're going to just go, well, I didn't think that was happening. It's a similar thing, and Brian also alluded to this, the, uh, the equity and diversity problems that we've had in orthopedics in the past, I think, are resolving. It's a big commitment of the academy um, to change that. And I think if you look at the board of directors of the academy, there's certainly evidence that at least the academy is going in the right direction in, in terms of underrepresented minorities, uh, females. Um, it's, a, it's a good tribute that we're all trying to get better. Are we succeeding? We have a long way to go. Um, but are we trying? Yes. And are we making steps a little bit of time? Never as fast as anybody would like, but all you can do is, is give that effort. And the last part of your question is, I think the, the ABOS is very interested in this. It's something that they, they looked at. We met with them not long ago to try to figure out a path forward. But as Brian said, it's a 360 degree evaluation and you have to figure out Who's doing the evaluation? Do they have a bias? Is there any ax to grind, so to speak, if someone local is doing it? Um, and, and so it's a very, very difficult process. And you hope that everyone has the ability to police themselves. But I do think we don't do that well and can do a much better job. Well, we're, we're running towards the end of time. I wanted to ask just one final question for each of you. Think back, what's number one piece of advice or hardest lesson learned? You know, if you had to summarize your leadership best advice into one concise statement, what would it be? You first, Brian, what do you think? Um, I think that uh, if you are a leader and you uh, feel uh, lonely leading, you're likely not connecting well with other people. Maybe take a minute to sort of take the blinders off and walk slower through the crowd. Um, you're probably not doing it right. Um, you, you can't leave people behind. Um, no one ever gets to the top alone. We 
have learned surrounding yourself by people better than you can have a tremendous impact in your ability to lead. Um, and I think the final one is, uh, is humility. And I've talked about a lot about this and I spent some time in my presidential address just because it's something that's been very important to me. Uh, having humility is important because it's not something that we're born with. Humility is something that you develop over time and some people get it really early because of life challenges. And some people are uh, so-called blessed because they don't have early life challenges and either never learn it or they learn it late and they're less prepared at that time in their life when they're faced with hard challenges. So uh, humility is something that I think if you're aware of, that self-awareness that comes from it can have a tremendous ability, a tremendous impact on your ability to lead. I'm not saying you can go out and buy it. You can't read a book about it, but it's something that you can, with a heightened sense of awareness, you can develop over time and become a very effective leader. Um, and, and as I say, get the most out of the organizations that you're trying to lead in and also be happy and be satisfying and have the satisfaction that comes from being in a leadership position. What do, you, what do you think, Dr. Serval? What's number one lesson learned? Is the same thing? Humility is the key. What else would you tell us? Well, I agree about humility. I think there's two key points. One, it's never about you. If, if you're really about a leader, George Marshall said way back that it's amazing what you can accomplish if no one cares who gets the credit. So it's never about you as a person. It's never about your abilities. What it's about is making everybody around you better. And the second thing would be to hear, because everyone talks about listening, but I think you actually have to hear and be open to disparate opinions. The worst thing in the world you can do is have everyone around you think like you do. So, and Brian talked about this, in, in many of my organizations, I've had people much better than me before me and after me, it's the case now, and it's really good to listen and hear what they have to say and internalize it and figure out What's the best way to go? So I think um, humility, smart people around you, listen to disparate opinions, and remember that you have to do what's best for the group as a whole, not for yourself. Incredible lessons from all of our guests today. That's actually one of my favorite quotes. It's amazing what can happen if you don't care who gets the credit. And it, it's just so true um, and hard to remember sometimes, but I think we'd all do better if we do remember that. We want to thank all three of our guests for taking so much time out of their incredibly busy schedules to spend the hour with us and with our ASES podcast listeners. We are so grateful to each and every one of you. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. My great thank honor. You. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And, you know, uh, ASES is uh, really fortunate to have both uh, Rachel and Pete in this role. Um, you know, this is a selfless job and you guys have done a, an amazing job of creating terrific content. So thank you for continuing to do this and I'll continue to listen into your podcast. I agree. Well said, Brian. Thank you guys. And with that, that's really all the time we have for tonight's podcast. We are so grateful to our guests once again for spending so much time with us tonight. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank and we'll see you next time.